and she said she clapped her hand upon her backside and bade the mayor kiss her there. You know, this is a woman who certainly didn't keep to half at home. She spoke her mind. The Tudors Dynasty Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast, Ask the Expert. I'm your host, Steph Storer, and today's episode is for those of you who love a good story. From circle time on the mat in kindergarten to bedtime with your parents to dinner table discussions or around a fire pit with a cocktail or two. People love to hear and share stories. Some, like our expert guest today, have made a living out of it. And I'm so pleased to welcome historian and professional storyteller Dave Tong to the show. Welcome, Dave. Oh, thanks. It's lovely to, to join you. I'm really looking forward to chatting tonight. I can't wait to chat and I can't wait to hear a story. So we're so excited to get into Tudor folklore with you today because this is this is just such a fun topic. How did you get into this? Uh, well, it, 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 when it comes to actual storytelling, you you kind of just drop into it. I mean, I, I was very lucky that, um, um, well, I'd always loved history at school. So um, when I finally became a mature student after being out in the real world for 10 years, um, it was natural that I would go back to history and straight away I was drawn to Tudor history. But I was actually working in a museum to to fund my studies as a mature student, and I just happened to meet another storyteller who, you know, he'd been travelling around for years, mainly sort of working in the sort of environment or environmental area, um, you know, telling stories to children and adults as well. And we we kind of fused my passion for history with his passion for storyteller storytelling, and that was twenty three years ago now, and. Um, I haven't looked back since, been working in heritage museums and that sort of area ever since. 23 years of storytelling sounds like such a great job. I can I can see why you'd want to keep going with it. it I, I, I'm just so lucky because, again, as I say, it really fuses my passion for history with, well, being creative as well. And, and, and to be honest, well, when you're talking about history to people, you know, and you talk about what I talk about mainly, of the lower orders, you know, you see people's real interest in that they can know something about people in the past 
but also that they can suddenly see that stories aren't just for young children, they're for us all. And you you really bring joy to people, which kind of gives you something back at the same time. You know, when you're doing it well, you really get that kind of two-way street. That like It's not just for them, it's as much for you, you know, the storyteller. I love that. Well, that's how you know you you are in the right profession, right? If you love it so much, we can hear your passion. I think that's so great. Exactly. You're quite right. Yeah, yeah. So now when we're when we're thinking of Tudor folklore, Tudor stories, or really any of the stories that you that you tell or that you research, where were these stories told first? Um, well, I mean, really it's a simple case of wherever people gather, because as I've said already, we're talking about a time when stories weren't just for children. So whilst they were told by the half at home, um, in the household, everyone would have been listening, servants and everyone, but very much in that great, in that wider world, you know, wherever people gathered. So, you know, the marketplace, I mean, there's a lovely parallel, which we'll come back to when it comes to the court records, the history, looking at court records, as I've done, you, you know, you see that people were very much gathering, not just in the marketplace to, uh, to buy and sell. That was just one part of it. In Norwich, for example, where I come from, um, we have all the mayor's court records that tell us that all kinds of entertainments were also being put on there. Um, punishments as well. So you might see someone in the stocks or the pillory, but you might see a play being performed. You might see a man who can perform wondrous feats with his mouth or a woman who can perform wondrous feats with her feet. Yeah, it, It's kind of bizarre, stuff like that. A wondrous animal called a baboon. So at the same time, you're going to have storytellers there as well. But one of the obvious places they would have told stories as well, of course, was the tavern yard and the alehouse. And certainly when it came to the what were called the petty chapmen who were selling chapbooks, which were very thin, very cheaply produced collections of stories, that's where they would go to sell their wares because there was a ready audience not only to listen, but obviously their persons were loosened by the ale. So they might even buy one of the chapbooks having heard one of the stories. So basically anywhere, Steph, really. And now where do you think, or I'm sorry, what do you think um, these stories would entail? And what I mean by that is for something to live on and for people to share the information or to share the tale, is there something that they all have in common that makes people want to talk about them or something that makes it interesting so that these stories can kind of originate somewhere and then become something that gets told over and over and again um well i think there's i think certainly there's an appeal to stories certain stories that means they carry on i mean that's why when it comes to stories there's no new story i mean the the stories tend to travel the stories i mean we're talking about tales that were first printed in Tudor times here. That's why we call them Tudor tales. But of course, they originate much earlier than that in the oral culture. And like many of our stories, you know, they've they've come to us from other lands. I mean, throughout medieval times, you know, you've got Chaucer stories in Italy, you've got Boccaccio stories. They're coming from Middle Eastern influences, stuff like that. They're being brought over by soldiers and sailors, which, of course, becomes all the more prevalent during Tudor times with merchants as well. And I think the ones that 
have survived are the are the ones that really just have that appeal and and whilst there's many different types of stories in Tudor times, some of them are very uh, uh how can I put it just um scatological gross um yeah they have a certain curiosity value they make people laugh the ones i think that really stand out certainly the ones that i've found they tend to be the ones that are quite moral and i don't mean they lecture people they tend to be they tend to mock vanity they tend to mock greed you know this is why really a lot of the robin hood stories the jester robin hood are coming to the fore in Tudor times, because um, they have that message. And and also, I think they appeal to a, a poor audience as well, because, yeah, life is hard. You know, you might be ground down a lot of the time, but at least in story, the kind of the poorer man, the common sort, you know, the poor woman, they can rise to the surface and they can see those people who may don't or sometimes they get punished but more often more often than not they get away with it because of their high position at least in story they get their comeuppance so certainly that is a theme that that is continuous and interesting enough those are the stories that people really respond well to even today you know we still like to see people get punished for their greedy ways their vanity all of those things that you know stand out Right. People love seeing the good guy win. And, you know, you want to see a happy ending, right? Exactly. Or, you know, or maybe a tragic ending as long as it's um, as long as there's some writings of wrong along the way. Exactly. Exactly. And you also bring up a great point about uh, you mentioned a few minutes ago them being printed or recorded. You know, the ones we're going to talk about today are in uh, Tudor times. But who actually started recording them or printing them was do you think that it was the teller of the stories or listeners who started actually recording these and printing them well i i think the, the difficulty we have with all these sort of this sort of thing is we are going back to a time where it's predominantly oral culture so obviously it's like anything else at that time any records we have tend to be they tend to come from um uh the the better off people you know what the middling sort or above um when it comes to the the stuff that's being printed at this time in in the what's called the uh the chat books which is the very cheap print well i think in that case it's the people who are listening because only be, and, and when i say listening they're the people who are they this these are backstreet printers who are desperate to print anything really if they can find something to print and sell they will so they're more concerned with the actual um just getting the stories rather than caring about them that much on the other hand, you've also got them what are called jest books, the stories, uh, collections like we've got 100 Merry Tales, which is first printed in about 1526, uh, The Mirror of Mirth at the end of the Tudor period from French sources, collections by people like Sir Nicholas Lestrange. Now, these jest books are, I, I, I suppose I call them of a higher order in that they're not just simple collections of stories. They try and do more with them. They try and arrange them into themes they actually try and arrange them as they would have time, done in Chaucer's time and, and that, and that they try and have a narrative in some way. Um, and so these people who are clearly, they care a bit more about the stories. And you do get a sense that those people are collectors of stories and they really do value them and they want to see them uh, live on in some way. So, yeah, that's why they're doing it. So that's not to say the poor people didn't care about the stories, except they kept them within the oral culture. That's how they cared about them, just by telling them backwards and forwards. 
So after having, you know, familiarized yourself with all these collections of stories, do you think that there's any kind of surviving themes that that you can find that are retold in today's stories or in in stories from other countries or anything that um sounds like it may have originated as the same story that became something else that we might know today? Uh, well, certainly as a storyteller, you do. You see the same themes again and again. I mean, at the minute, I'm working on a, a collection of trickster tales. And, and there, for example, you see it all the time. You know, everyone, I mean, even in this country, people will claim a certain story to a certain locality. But you can't really do that. I mean, certainly two times, a good example is the Pedro Swatham Swatham is a small town in Norfolk, and certainly that story has been associated with Swatham for hundreds of years. Uh, I mean, it's it's first actually recorded as being printed as the, the Peddler of Swatham in the 1600s. Now, of course, before that, it was part of the oral culture, so we can say it's probably a Tudor story in Swatham. However, that story is originally, again, a Middle Eastern story. And you can get German versions of that story, Irish versions, you name it. People have got a version of that story. And um, so, yeah, they, that one has survived because it's a very s- simple story about a man who follows his dreams. He's uh, very basic, very quickly. He's he, In his dream, he's told to go to London Bridge for there. He will hear good news. And when he gets there, the, the good news he hears is that actually... The, the treasure he seeks is buried back in his own house or rather in his own garden. And and the reason that story, I think, has translated all over the world over a long time is because it's very simple and it's a story that can appeal to young and old. So certainly those very simple stories travel. And others have travelled because we, well, we know they've, they've travelled through time because quite a few of the stories that are in those early jest books and chat books are actually you see versions of them in phrase say for example the uh, the brothers grim and um albeit they're very simplified versions because what they've done is get rid of all the darker aspects that were quite common in Tudor times and also the there was a lot of bawdiness in the stories as well you know a little bit rude too rude for even the brothers grim so they've they've come through and even in Shakespeare of course because although he's famous for sort of borrowing from classical sources he was influenced by the chapbooks and jest books. In fact, one of the collections of 100 Merry Tales is often referred to as Shakespeare's Bawdy. So again, certain themes within, and as I said, certainly the theme of righting wrongs and, you know, the poorer folk getting it over, getting one over on the on the more greedy, richer people is one of those strong themes that comes through as well. So yeah, it's, it's not just themes, but it's it's the quality of the tale in terms of who it appeals to as well. It's so interesting because when I asked that question, I was wondering if you were going to mention people like the the Brothers Grimm or, you know, Hans Christian Andersen or something like that. So that's very interesting that you did that you did say the Brothers Grimm and even Shakespeare. I, I love that. Yeah, I was going to say, I must admit, you know, when I'm thinking about this, there's a lot that doesn't come through. And that's one of the difficulties as a storyteller. There is quite a, a large amount of stories from this time, certainly in my book, but certainly in books of the time or collections of the time, that you can't really do a lot with. I mean, you do your best, and that's one of the things you have to remember because it was predominantly an oral culture. At least when it's in the uh, coming from the storyteller, they can they can 
if they're good at what they do, they can tailor it to their audience. So they can, you know, take away the darker aspects. They can, and of course, it depends whether they're telling to rich or poor, whether they're turning to telling to Catholic or Protestant. They have that power to to soften and and make it a little bit more palatable. Yeah, you know, we we do have that problem, especially nowadays with um a lot of our stories in that um you know they certainly don't fit in with our a lot of our views, political views and what have you these days, you know, when it comes to gender and stuff like that. So that's one one of the reasons when I put them in my book of stories that I, I've used them with the court records, because at least mixing them up with the court records that kind of link to them, at least it, it, it allows people, readers, to, to get an idea of the context from the time. So even if it's not a story they would particularly agree with today, at least they can see why it was told like that long ago. That's very smart of you. That's that's definitely really helpful because I think it is very hard for people nowadays uh, to put things in the context in which it would have happened Yeah, because we definitely look and, you know, through no fault of our own, but we definitely look at some stories or some even historical facts, things like that with modern eyes. Right. So yeah. that's really helpful of you. So let's talk about your book a little bit then. Right. Now, um, tell us, first of all, the name of your book. It's well, it was called it was originally called Tudor Tales as a hardback through the history press here in the UK. And they rebranded it as a paperback to Tudor folk tales, uh, mainly because they've got a whole array of folk tales now from across the world. And they wanted it to fit with that, that whole kind of thing. But yeah, Tudor folk tales now in paperback. So we can find it on uh, Amazon, I'm guessing, right? You can yeah. order it pretty much anywhere you buy your books. Yeah. Okay, great. So now your book has two halves. Am I right? It's kind of split up into two halves. Yes. I know. Um, yeah. We have the historical half in the beginning, and then we go into the stories yeah. in the second half. Each Well, actually, each chapter is broken down. It's given a different title relating to the great commotion or things like that to do with the Reformation or whatever. But then each story is introduced with a – so each story gets its own historical introduction or, or each clips, uh, section of stories, does I should say, that, that relates in some way. So if it's a case of uh, stories about – uh, and when I say mocking women, it's mocking men as well. I don't mean it's just mocking women on their own, but or you know stories about scolds or some such thing. The introduction is taken from the mayor's court in Norwich and also the consistory court, which were the church courts. And again, the with with stories or rather, uh, in that case, I should say uh, court records that relate to scolding or or some such thing. But we'll come back to that. I dare say. So as you were researching the historical part, what's something, can you tell us something that just you found interesting or something that helped you to better explain the stories in kind of a fun, interesting way? Yeah, I mean, I was very lucky because um, I was, well, I did know me. I started a PhD, but, but I actually gave up on that to become a full-time storyteller. I ran away from that. But during my MA, I was actually very lucky that I was looking at a very interesting area. And it was looking in, in late Tudor Norwich. And the reason, not only because I come from Norwich, but Norwich is very lucky that it has a very complete collection of court records for this time. Um, and I was I was looking at the way men and women actually related to each other in terms of how they were differences between punishments for men and women, but also how they slandered each other. 
uh, and stuff like that in the church courts, which was a very common thing. You know, again, it comes back to the fact that people were out in public a lot, and so it was a very powerful thing to slander someone. And and when I was looking at that, what became apparent, not just in the cases of punishments for slander or whatever it would be, I, I I became aware that, first of all, that the people we were dealing with, I was dealing with, weren't that different to us. And also, we, you were seeing in the court records the reality of people as opposed to the idealised version of Tudor times. And, and I say that because if we look at, like, the laws of the time, the statutes and that, you get a, a sense of a very regulated society. You know, people in terms, you know, they had to dress in a certain way, they had to act in a certain way. Women were supposed to know their place and keep to hearth and home. But actually, when I started looking at the court records, certainly when it came to the, the poorer folk, they weren't acting like that at all, and they they were they were they weren't that different to us, you know. And and so again, as I say, it was that the reality of Tudor times which really appealed to me that I could, you know, um, I could tell you exactly what so and so was saying to so and so, you know, at that, that time, men were mocking their their so called betters. The mayor was often slandered by men, and and not only that, women were were taking the the powerful to to task as well, and it. It, it was a joy for me. I spent a couple of years going through these records and I wasn't just looking at the ones about men and women in terms of their sexual behaviours I've meant to and stuff like that. I was recording everything. So therefore I had a lot of information to, to go in this book when I finally uh, finally wrote it. Um, I mean, I'll just give you an example of that. Um, I, I hope I can say this. Uh, you know, Margaret Cayley was uh, summoned towards the court, to answer to court, and she said she clapped her hand upon her backside and bade the mayor kiss her there. You know, this is a woman who certainly didn't keep to half at home. She spoke her mind. You know, I can tell you that another man called um, John Venn, he was put in the stocks for making men believe he could find things that were lost he was a trickster of the time so naturally when it came to writing my book you know when it came to trickster tales I introduced that section with John Venn and others counterfeit cranks people who feigned illness um you know a man called William Denny who who counterfeited himself to be dumb in in hope that he would then extort money from people you know people who were were being kind to him so yeah, you can you can know a lot, especially with the mayor's court in Norwich, because it dealt with all aspects of Norwich life, from regulation of prices to uh, to what people were wearing, to um, you know uh, all all aspects of, of of life, punishments, you name it. Well, I think that all of those teasers are are making not only me, but I'm sure our listeners at the moment need to hear a story. So what do you think about that, Dave? Do you think that you can give us one of your tales? Well, do you know, Steph, I'd love to. And I was thinking about this. I've got a fairly short one. And since I mentioned John Venn, the trickster, who made people believe he could find things that were lost, I, I think a, a trickster tale. I mean, then as now, they were very popular. And one of the most popular tricksters, and this is, this is I always struggle saying his name, It like many of the stories that came over in Tudor times, um, not just far away, but also from Europe, from France and Germany, were the tales of Uhlenspiegel or Eulenspiegel. Now, I say that because there are many variations of his name. In fact, once when I was telling stories in Sherwood Forest, I had a, a Dutchman and a German who both claim him as their own. He's their version of Robin Hood in a way. Um, argue about the correct pronunciation. Uh, 
Now, I have a get-out clause because when the stories came over here to England, uh, they were anglicised and his name became Hourglass. And again, very popular stories in Tudor times. So I'd like to tell you one of uh, one of his stories, if that's okay. It's not only okay, it is most welcome. Please do. Wonderful. Well, I always start this story like this. There was once a trickster, a beguiler of the foolish, a coney-catching cunning man called Hourglass. He travelled from town to town, village to village, house to house, wearing many different disguises. Sometimes a priest, sometimes a potter, and sometimes a peddler of wares. But on this occasion, on this day, he arrived in a certain town disguised as a doctor of physic, a doctor. And he went abroad about the town, claiming that he could cure any ill. He said no this to everyone who would listen. He said no this. Whether you have the sweating sickness, the pestilence or the pox, whether you have boils on your belly, boils on your back or even boils on your bare backside, I shall cure them all for a price, of course. And such were his boasts. They reached the ears of the director of the local hospital, who had many patients in his care who he could not cure. And so he went to see Dr. Hourglass and asked for his help. And Hourglass, he said, why, yes, of course, I can cure them all. Whether they have boils on their bellies, boils on their backs or boils on their bums, I shall cure them for a price, of course. And he told the director that he would charge 100 gold coins for his service. But so confident was Dr. Hourglass, he said, no, this. He said, no, this. If I cannot cure but one of them, I will not take a coin. Well, the director, he had eyes for a bargain and ears too, of course. And so he shook hands with Dr. Hourglass. And the following day, Hourglass, he arrived at the hospital. He was given a small chamber, a small room off the side of the great hall, where he might examine the patients one at a time. One by one by one, they were brought before Hourglass. One by one by one, they told him their tales of woe. For they told him of the boils on their back, of the boils on their bellies, and of the boils on their bare backsides. And as each told their tale of woe, Hourglass, he would scribble and scrape with pen upon parchment. He would tut, 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 and nod, nod, nod in all the right places. And when each in turn had finished their tale of woe, he would draw them close and say, Listen, I like you. Do you like me? In fact, I like you so much, said Hourglass to each in turn. I'm going to tell you a secret, although you must swear to tell no one else. When each in turn had sworn that they would not tell another living soul, he would say, know this, if I'm to cure you all, I must find the sickest one amongst you to burn and use the ashes to make a medicine that the rest of you will drink. If I'm to cure you all, says he, I must find the sickest one amongst you to burn. Well, having each told each in turn the very same story, he went out into the hall. He ordered the servants of the hospital, they set and light a great fire. He ordered that all of the patients be brought before him. And now Hourglass, standing on a box so that all could see him, he called out, Let he who is the sickest one here step forward. But none stepped forward. He went from one to the next, asking each in turn, Are you the sickest one here? But each in turn, they said, No, they were not sick at all. In fact, they'd been cured, that it was a miracle cure. 
And even though most of them hadn't walked more than a few steps in many years, all now ran quickly from the hospital. And so it was, the patients were cured for a day or two at least. The director of the hospital, he was happy for a day or two at least. But Dr. Howellglass, he was very rich and very happy for a very long time to come. And there ends my Tudor tale. I hope you enjoyed it, Steph. Dave, I think that you are mesmerizing and you are absolutely in the right profession. And I wish that was longer. <laughs> so I would love to hear some more stories. Where can our listeners hear you tell more stories? Well, if we, and of course, we want them to buy the book as well. But what, uh, where do you go? Where can we find you? Do you know what? It's lovely having in the book. And, and I will say this. What's nice about when you um, when you take stories, adapt them from chat books and jest books at this time. They tend to be anecdotal. So you tend to put yourself in the story just as I did there. And um and I and certainly in my book I've tried to write them as as I tell them because many of the stories I've been telling for years now. Um, but and it, but it is nice to hear them told live, especially if you're face to face. But that said, I do have a YouTube channel. Um, it was done at the start of uh, the lockdown period, so it was quite rough and ready. Um, so yeah, but at least you see me as well as hear me, so it, it, it is nice. Yeah, YouTube channel. You can find me on under the Yarn Smith on YouTube, and I'm also on something called the. The World Storytelling Cafe. Again, if you Google that, you should be able to find that. It, it's and that's a lovely resource for hearing lots of different stories, world tales, as well as my stories. You can find me on there as well. The World Storytelling Cafe. That sounds awesome. Oh, yeah. So we will have to check that out, and we will definitely have to check out your YouTube channel as well. We will all buy your book. And I'm so happy and honored that you came on today and that you shared your story and your voice uh, with us today because, uh, like I said, I just, it was mesmerizing and I wish you could have kept going. Um, But again, thank you so much for joining us today, Dave. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Steph. And of course, I have to thank our listeners as well. Um, we couldn't do it without you. So thank you to all of you who have written in with questions. Thank you to all who are listening to this week's episode. As always, we appreciate your support and we hope you'll tune in again next time as we continue to ask our experts the pressing questions you want answered. And if you love the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and want to show even more support, please consider becoming a patron where you'll not only receive the great content we're offering now, but extra insider research, information, prizes, and other exciting opportunities that are only offered by subscribing. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.